just draw your attention to one more thing in the bulletin. Uh, you Under that section over there under community involvement, uh, there's a part of that that references the cafe and the fact that John and Chris Heffron, right there, raise your hands, guys, anybody who may not know you, uh, they have been married for 35 years. And... Amen, okay? What a testimony to God's grace. Uh, if you've met John, you know that uh, that has happened, right? <laughs> um, testimony of God's grace, right? All of, uh, all of you men, uh, say amen, okay? <laughs> because um, we all, as men, I think, marry up. Um, we get better than we deserve, uh, not only from the Lord, but from our wives. Um, but they have been married for 35 years, and they are going to Ireland for two weeks the end of April and the first week of May, and they need some help down at the cafe to keep the cafe open. Uh, I am taking the Tuesday nights during those two weeks. Uh, I'll be there from 3 to 5 on those Tuesdays. And they need some other folks to cover the other nights. Um, and if you can, have, if you have a night free that you can go and uh, uh, honor their marriage and support the cafe, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. So um, I think that's a tremendous achievement, particularly in our day and age, to be married to the same person, still loving each other for 35 years, and they have. And uh, so encourage you to, uh, to come alongside John and Chris and, uh, and help them out with the cafe. Um, we're back in the Gospel of Mark today. We took a little detour the last two weeks so we could look at the, um, the entry into Jerusalem uh, out of the Gospel of Luke, and last week we were in Matthew 28, so we could look at the resurrection, but we're back in Mark, and we'll get to the entry and, and, the, uh, and the resurrection in Mark too. but it'll be uh, probably this summer when that happens. So uh, we're in Mark chapter 7 today, and as you're getting there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been completely exhausted? Completely exhausted. I'm not talking about like, you know, if you work all outside all day, you know, chopping firewood or uh, moving gravel or digging holes or, uh, you know, raking leaves or something, it's you, you get to the end of the day and you, and you, you maybe take a shower and you put on your uh, sweatpants and a t-shirt and kind of flop in the chair and go, you know, and that, then you feel kind of pleasantly tired. What I'm talking about by exhausted is I'm talking about just bone weary, sleep for three days, tired. And it might surprise you to know this, but the fact is, is that even though Jesus was and is fully God, he got that kind of tired because he was also a real man. He was fully God and fully man in one, uh, in one person forever. And uh, Jesus, as we've been looking uh, at his story here in the Gospel of Mark, has been trying to get the disciples away to go have some rest. And if you remember, they got in the boat, and they were going across the lake, and they were going to go over to the other side where they could rest. Well, instead, uh, they wound up um, getting met as soon as they landed by a huge crowd of people. At least there were 5,000 men and a, a number of women and children besides that, and they wound up feeding them, and then they wound up going to the, trying, okay, we're going to go to the other side of the lake now, and we're going to get over there. And when they got there, they wound up going through the marketplace healing people. They're tired. And then they wound up having to be confronted by the Pharisees who are 
uh, after them because they're so hungry and so tired, they didn't even wash their hands to eat. And the, the Pharisees had criticized them over the fact that they didn't wash their hands before they ate. And so now, Jesus decides, you know what? We're just not even going to be anywhere where there might be Jews. We're going to go somewhere else entirely. We're going to go off to Tyre. Now, you may not know where Tyre is, but Tyre is an ancient city along the Mediterranean coast. It's out of Israelite territory. It's in what is now modern-day Lebanon. And it's been there for a long, long time. Um, no one knows exactly when the city of Tyre was founded. We know it was a thriving kingdom in the time of King Solomon who bought cedar from Lebanon for the temple from there, from the king of Tyre. Um, and, and Tyre is a city that's mentioned throughout the Old Testament. You, remember, you may remember that uh, a woman in the Old Testament who was married to King Ahab, whose name was Jezebel, uh, she was a wicked person, wicked queen. She was an idolater worshiper of Baal, and Tyre was the ancient center for Baal worship. And so there were not a lot of Jews who lived there. And Jesus and his disciples are tired. They're war to a nub. And they want rest. So they go, where are we going to go where we can get rest? Well, let's go to some place where there won't be anybody who knows who we are or what we've been doing, where there won't be any Jews. Let's go and get some rest. Um, and they're ready for some R&R and some peace and quiet. So if you have your Bible, um, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, we'll pick up there. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. And then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. And there were people, there, there some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hands on the man. And after he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were amazed, were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As I said, Jesus and his disciples are exhausted. And so they're going to the place where they can get away from all of the crowds and all of the people and all of the needs that are surrounding them. And so even though Jesus goes into town and he's trying to keep his presence there a secret, he can't. When he gets there, uh, word gets out. 
about the Jewish rabbi who has been working wonders all over Galilee, which is not that far away. And this woman comes, and she is a Gentile. Uh, when it says that she's a Greek, it does not mean that she's um, from Greece. It means that she is a Gentile. Uh, in the Jewish mind, there are two, two types of people. There are Jews, and then there are everybody else who are referred to as Greeks, <laughs> okay? Which in this day and age is not so such an unusual designation because Greek is the language that everybody who is not Jewish speaks in the Roman world. Um, uh, obviously, Romans spoke Latin as a native language, but everybody spoke Greek. Even Jews spoke Greek. And if you were not a Jew, you were a Greek as far as they were concerned. And this woman was born in this area. She grew up as a pagan, in other words. Uh, in fact, Matthew, in his account of the, same, of the same incident, refers to her as a Canaanite. Okay? In other words, this is a pagan woman, or at least until she meets Jesus. This is a pagan woman. Uh, and she, it's likely that she had grown up as an idol worshiper. That's, that's the religion of the area. Uh, as I said, in the ancient times, it was the center for Baal worship. Uh, that continued uh, into, into pretty far into, um, into ancient history. Uh, may have still been around by, the, by Jesus' day. We don't know for sure. Uh, what we do know is that she, she seeks Jesus out because she thinks that she, that she is going to be able to get healing from, for her daughter from Jesus. And so she seeks him out. And when Jesus, when she meets Jesus, she falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter. And then Jesus has this response that I have to tell you, when I initially read this, it really bugged me. Maybe it bugged you when, you, when I was reading it. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Does that sound like the Jesus you know? That sounds a little cold. I mean, basically, what he's saying is, uh, dogs get the scraps after dinner. Let the kids eat. We'll feed the dog the table scraps, the leftovers. It's not quite as harsh as it comes across in English, because he uses the word little dogs, specifically the, the word there is the word for little dogs, meaning house pet, not, not a scavenger, you know, but still dogs you know it's 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 fluffy and fifi and not wily e. coyote but it's still a dog <laughs> okay this is not a flattering term because for a jew a, a dog after a pig is the most unclean animal and a jew would never keep a dog as a pet and he says you know first let the little dogs uh eat all they want because it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. And he is still saying something that's not terribly flattering. Um, but what he is also saying is this. He's saying that right now, it's more important that my disciples get time with me than it is that you get your daughter healed. Now, that's interesting. Because you would think... Okay, demon-possessed woman, time alone with Jesus. Which is more important? Which is the more immediate need to take care of? 
Well, most of us would automatically think, well, healing this, this woman's demon-possessed daughter automatically takes precedence over time alone with Jesus to rest. That's not what Jesus says. He's saying, it's more important right now that my disciples, the children, get what they need from me than that you get what you need from me. Because after all, these are my children, and you're an outsider. You're a dog. Um, He isn't saying that the woman's request is not important. But what he is saying is that, that there is a time and a priority. And you're a second priority after these men. Um, now is the time for the disciples to learn, to learn from me and to rest with me. And after that is done, then I'll deal with your situation. Uh, let me also point out something else Jesus is doing with his response. He's not just... He's not just drawing a contrast between his disciples and this Gentile woman. He's also trying to separate out, uh, even in this woman's own heart, the wheat from the chaff. Because there were lots of people, and in fact there are lots of people, who want to be in relationship with Jesus only insofar as it creates benefits for them. Right? Right? You even have preachers on TV who will tell you this, okay? They'll sell you this kind of a line. They'll say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then nothing bad will ever happen to you ever again. No one you love will get sick. No one you love will die. Your car will always run and never break down. I mean, they make all kinds of outlandish, uh, totally unbiblical, unjustified promises to people. And, and you can have all this if you just trust Jesus and send me a donation for $19.95 payor to, payable to whatever, whatever ministry, right? Okay? And there are a lot of people who, uh, in a desperate situation, are willing to try anything. But it's not, the, it's not the response of faith that Jesus is looking for. It's just somebody who's like, you know... Hey, whatever. And I'm looking for a way to get benefits out of this. And so Jesus is responding to her in a way that seems pretty harsh to us as a way of separating out whether this response that this woman is having toward him is simply a desire to receive benefits or if it's actually motivated by any kind of faith and trust in him as who he is. Um, he is looking for not just a crowd, after all, but he's looking for followers. People who don't see him as simply a circus act or a sideshow, but as people who see him as Lord and Messiah and God and who want to follow him. And he's trying to discern, which one are you, lady? Are you someone who is simply here because you know that I have power and can act on your behalf, but other than that, you want nothing to do with me? Or are you interested in following me because I am the Lord and Messiah? You know, the old saying goes, there's no atheists in foxholes. That's true, right? And when you're in a desperate situation like this woman is in, 
He's like, you know, hey, I'll pray to whoever I need to. Okay? And Jesus is trying to, to, to draw it out with her. What kind of person are you? Are you someone who only comes to God when you're in deep need? Or are you someone who authentically wants to follow me? So he gives her this response. But look at what she says. Verse 29, look, or verse 28 here. Look at this. What she says, yes, Lord, she replied. Now, there's debate about whether that term Lord is one that is uh, simply, simply her being respectful or whether she is acknowledging him as Messiah. I think she is acknowledging him as Messiah. It's the term that uh, is used throughout the Gospels to denote Jesus as Messiah. She doesn't say rabbi. She doesn't say teacher. She doesn't say, um, you know, dude. She says, Lord. She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, what's she saying? She's saying, look, when the children are eating, uh, your little dog underneath, you know, gets underneath the table and cleans up the scraps. Now, I know this to be true, okay? We have a little dog. We, uh, she's about yay high mini dachshund named Sophie, okay? And if she is out when we are eating a meal, anything that hits the floor, the dog is eating, Right? Ooh, slice of pizza. You know, I mean, it, it's a, if you drop something, it's a foot race to get it before the dog, right? Um, we don't have to sweep the floor as much. I mean, seriously, it's amazing. We have to mop more often, but we don't sweep as much, right? Um, uh, because she, he, what she's saying is, look, I don't have to wait. Even if I am a dog, I don't have to wait because at mealtime, the dogs and the children eat at the same time. <laughs> and on top of that, what she's saying in her response, yes, Lord, is she is claiming a higher status for herself. She's saying, I'm not just a dog. I'm not just an outsider. I'm a child. And I think she's expressing faith in Jesus. What he had hoped to prompt her to do, which is, in other words, to point out that, um, that I'm not just here to offer benefits to you. I'm here to be your Lord and your God. She's saying, yes, you are Lord and God. And so, therefore, if you are my Lord and my God, then... I am a child, and therefore, I get to move up. But even if you don't recognize me as one of your children yet, the dogs and the kids eat at the same time, so help me. And notice, I think, and I think that my understanding of this is justified because of notice what Jesus says. For such a reply. In other words, there's a, there's, there's obviously a different kind of reply than the one she gave. And I think Jesus is commending this woman for her response of faith, of trusting Jesus. 
Uh, he says, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Now, this is interesting, too, because only here in the Gospel of Mark does Jesus cast out a demon without ever giving a verbal command. Most of the other, uh, well, every other instance where Jesus heals someone of possession by a demon, uh, he a- actually stands in front of the person and says, come out of him, come out of her, right? But here, there's not even any command. He just tells the lady, go home. When you get there, the demon will be gone. Now, is that power? That's power. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. But what this passage shows is that Jesus loves this Gentile woman. Even though she's probably a former idol worshiper, even though in some sense that may be why her daughter is demon-possessed, because they've been going to the idol temple to worship. Because as Paul says, those who bow down before idols worship demons. And so in some sense, the, the issue at hand may be, in fact, partly their own fault. Jesus has compassion on this woman because she trusts him. She acknowledges him as Lord. And Jesus loves Gentiles and receives them, too, as disciples and followers. But at the end of this, Jesus and his disciples still need rest. And so they go off to Sidon, which is about 20 miles north up the coast. And then they cut down from Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, and which means they completely avoid the actual Jewish region of Galilee entirely. They kind of skirt that intentionally. And then they go down the other side of the Sea of Galilee, down the other side of the Jordan River to this area called the Decapolis. Uh, it's in the uh, what was in the Old Testament uh, era of the kingdom, part of the tribal inheritance of the tribe of Manasseh, part of the northern kingdom. Uh, when the kingdom was divided between Israel and Judah, the tribe of Manasseh held part of this territory. But after the exile uh, by the Assyrians of the northern kingdom, this area was never again part of Israel. And it got settled um, under the uh, the reign of the uh, generals that followed Alexander the Great. It got settled as Gentile, Greek-speaking cities. And it was called the, the Decapolis because there were ten of these little towns, uh, the ten cities. And Jesus goes to another area where he thinks, I'm not going to run into any Jews here. (laughs) And so we're going to get rest. And when he gets there, what happens? As soon as he got there, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. Now, we're not sure if this man is Gentile or Jew. Since, Since Mark doesn't specifically mention his nationality, he may be a Jew. But likelihood is he's not a very pious Jew because the pious Jews all lived on the other side of the river. Uh, But Jesus takes him aside and he starts to do some things that are kind of interesting. He, He puts his finger, he gets him off to the side where he can kind of look at him and the guy can read his lips maybe. And he sticks his fingers in the guy's ears and then he spits on the ground and he touches the guy's tongue. And what I think he's trying to do is kind of charades, in a sense. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. 
And then he says to the man, he says, Ephatha, which is Aramaic for be opened. And immediately the guy can hear. And because he can hear, he can also talk. Because if you struggle with hearing, you struggle with talking oftentimes. And so immediately the guy can hear, and because he can hear, he can then talk. Um, but look at, the, look at the, the way in which this happens. Verse 34 says, he looked up to heaven. And I think he's looking up to heaven in front of the man so that, he can, so that the man can understand that it's by the power of God that he's about to do what he's doing. And then it says, he let out a deep sigh. Now, maybe it's because he's struggling with, um, with, I mean, there are some commentators who said, well, he's, he's struggling with the demonic forces which hold this man captive, maybe. Maybe he's uh, simply just tired. You know, you ever been just whipped and you just go, because <sighs> you're just tired? Maybe it's that, because we know Jesus is. And maybe it's simply that Jesus is worn out in a different way. You know, here he sees this man who is suffering from the effects of living in a fallen world as a fallen human being. You know, the world that God made was perfect, and everything in it was very good, according to Genesis, right? And then human beings fell into sin. And it's been downhill since then. And now, and now where there was no disease and there was no death, now there is both. And infants die and people are born deaf and they can't talk and they get sick and they get H1N1 and they get AIDS and they get all kinds of stuff, right? Because we're fallen people living in a fallen world. And I think Jesus just has compassion on this man. And he's sad for him, and so he sighs. Then he heals him. And he can fix. He fixes in an instant that aspect of this man's brokenness. And people are amazed by Jesus. And and he keeps telling them. In fact, the, the text literally says he kept telling them. When it says, my Bible says in verse 36, he commanded them. Literally, that reads, he kept commanding them over and over again, told them, shut up, don't tell anybody, keep it quiet. And it's because Jesus wants to minister in this area without having people treat him like a freak show and to come to him for simply the spectacle. He wants them to come to him because they recognize from the power of his teaching and his life not just the power of his miracle, who he is. But they, you know, if, what, would, what would happen if you had seen that? You tell everybody you know. And that's what people did. Even though Jesus told them, be quiet, don't tell anybody. They just keep blabbing off at the mouth at it, about it. And pretty soon he can't minister there without drawing a huge crowd. In fact, we're going to see next week that he feeds 4,000 men because of the huge crowd that gets attracted based on the healing of this deaf and mute man. Uh, 
people are recognizing him. Um, and they're, they're starting to recognize him, in fact, as Messiah. Look at the end here, verse 37. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, why is that important? Because in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah talks about the Messiah, and this is what he says, that in the days of Messiah, this is the ver- these are the verses, verse 5 and 6, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame will leap, leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. In other words, this is what Isaiah predicted. This guy is the Messiah. They're recognizing him. Now, um, it's going to be a short message this morning. Um, Let's, let's just talk about this here for a few minutes about this as it relates to us personally. And let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you taking time for yourself to be with Jesus? Are you taking time to be with Jesus? You should know by now that God never lets me off the hook on my own messages. <laughs> okay. Um, and in my study this week, as I was putting this message together, I felt the Spirit poking me on that question. I always have to learn what I'm about to teach. And I was being reminded, are you taking time to be with me? Are you taking time to rest and be with Jesus? Sometimes not. Okay. Sometimes I need, I need to be able to prioritize between meeting one more ministry need and resting and being with Jesus. And let me say, too, as your pastor, let me just give you all an encouragement on this. We, for a church our size, do a tremendous amount of ministry. In fact, I've never been part of a church that did more ministry with this few of people. Okay, We have every week about 90 kids in here for Awana in this very room. Uh, and we share the gospel with them, and we teach them the scriptures, and we play games with them, and we have all kinds of fun, right? And there's about 30 of you who are in there with me, working like crazy to make sure that these kids understand the scriptures and that they know the Lord, right? And when I get to the end of Awana night, uh, I'm tired. I get up at 5 on Wednesdays so I can meet with my men's group at 6. Then I go to the office after we have breakfast together. And then I go home about 8.30 that night. I'm tired when I get done. And I bet many of you get up about a, at a similar time and you go to a job and you, you come home and you maybe stuff some food down your neck uh, about 5.30. And then you go to Awana at 6 and you're tired when you get home. You have a longer drive maybe than I've got. I live five minutes from here. Um, Or you're involved with mops, or you're involved with women's Bible study, or you're involved with Sunday school, or you're involved with children's ministry, or you're involved with youth ministry, or you're involved with uh, men's ministry, or you're involved with any of the other myriad of activities we've got going on. You're involved with missions, you're involved with prayer, and you're laboring in prayer for people in our congregation. You're sharing the gospel with people in a dedicated way, Uh, a couple of times a week maybe, and you get tired. And when we get tired, 
We need to remember that there is a time for ministry and a time to pull away and rest and learn to be Jesus. Right? And it's easy, trust me on this, it's easy to let the all the other aspects of ministry and all the time that you need to devote to that crowd out the time to sit and be with Jesus. Right? So, uh, let me point the finger at me and then point it at you. Are you taking time as you should and as you need to and as Jesus' disciples did and as, in fact, Jesus himself did? Jesus himself took time away to rest and be with his Father, right? And he takes his disciples away to rest and be with him. And he's asking us, to do the same kinds of things, to take time away to be with Jesus. And, you know, even though there's still ministry that happens, Jesus is still concerned that his disciples get time away with just him. And they have to get it maybe in a different way than he had planned, you know, as they're walking to Tyre and as they're walking to Sidon and as they're walking to the Decapolis and as they're in the midst of it sometimes. But are you taking time rest and be with Jesus. Um, Another question, are you a follower of Jesus or simply part of the crowd? As I said, Jesus is not looking simply to draw a crowd. It's easy to draw a crowd. You just have to be wonderfully entertaining and cheap, right? You know, and and there are even some churches in our day who that is the ministry model that they operate under. It's free to come and we're wonderfully entertaining. Right? Um, Jesus is free to come and see. And he's incredibly entertaining. And when's the last time you watched demons get cast out of people or lame people get up and walk or blind people start to see or deaf people start hearing or dead people start living for that matter? Okay, I mean, Jesus is a spectacle, I'll assure you. Okay, he was very popular at weddings. He was more popular at funerals, all right? I'm I'm serious, they're carrying the body down the street one day and Jesus grabs this kid by the hand and the kid gets up out of the coffin and takes a hold of his mother. And Jesus says to the woman, Madam, would you like your child? I mean, would you think that would be cool? Right? To see that? I would like to see that. Um, And so Jesus draws a crowd, but he's not interested in simply drawing a crowd. He's interested in attracting people who are authentic followers and disciples, not just an audience. Jesus never promises that following him is going to be one uninterrupted uh, series of blissful occurrences in which your entire life of following him is going to be all peaches except for the cream. Jesus never promises that. And Jesus, though he can and often does, 
do great and awesome and incredible works of power even today in the lives of his followers. He doesn't promise to smooth every difficulty and make flat every bump. But what he does do is he does promise, as Paul says, an eternal weight of glory which, with which the circumstances of our present life are not worthy to be compared. Amen? And your life will have difficulty. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I'll guarantee you it will have difficulty. But the Bible clearly presents that knowing Jesus is worth it. It's worth every difficulty, every problem, every bit of suffering, every death, every illness, every pain that you experience is worth it for the sake of knowing and following and obeying and worshiping Jesus, who is the only true God. And so the question is, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower? Are you the audience? Are you a disciple or just part of the crowd? Which are you? Which do you want to be? Let's pray.